This morning's uh, scripture reading is the, uh, the fourth and the final uh, of Isaiah's servant songs. And we've been doing that through the four, looking at the, each of them through the four Sundays of Advent. Now this, one that we're going to look at this morning, is the longest, it's the most famous, it is by far the most quoted, and it starts with Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, that's where we'll be starting. And it continues from Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through the end of Isaiah 53. Now, just, just remember for a second these servant songs. They are four sections in this very large book written by the prophet Isaiah. And in the latter part of this book, the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy, where all these servant songs are located, he's writing these words of comfort and hope to a future people of Judah who will be in exile after Jerusalem and Judah have fallen to the, the empire of Babylon. These are words of comfort that foretold the coming of one, the coming of a servant who would be Israel's Messiah. Now, because this is a, regular, uh, a, a, a relatively long reading, I'll, I'll ask you to stay seated as I read it. Oftentimes, I'll ask you to stand as a sign of respect for God's Word, but the respect isn't really from the standing. The respect is really in our hearts. And so, as we have a longer passage and stuff, we may actually be able to respect it more by not fidgeting and wondering when Tom's going to let you sit down, but instead being seated and focusing on the words that I am that I'm reading. So we're going to start with Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13. I'll read through the end of Isaiah 53, and when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. God's word, starting at Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root, Out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days." 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I had to tell you from the, from the very beginning that this is a, this is a challenging text to, to preach, and I felt it was important to read the whole of the, of the servant song, um, but it's challenging because I feel a bit inadequate for it. It's typical on any given week when I stand up here that I share with you certainly, certainly less than half, if I had to guess, less than half of what I could possibly say about any text that we would be studying. But with this text, it's probably less than 10%, maybe even less than 1% of the things that could possibly be said or could be explored in this text do I have the ability to talk about in just the next couple of minutes. The other challenge with this text is that it isn't, it isn't, it isn't like a linear argument. In other words, it, 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 it divides up pretty neatly if you look at the poetry. There's five, like three verse stanzas to the, to the song, but it's but it's harder to see a progression of Isaiah's point that divides up into those sections. Like you don't just start with one and the second one builds on the third. It, it's, it, it's more as if they, they kind of just overlap on one another. The themes are kind of throughout the entirety of the, of the song. And that's okay. I mean, that's poetry. That's what happens in poetry. You get the ideas kind of overlapping on themselves. It's kind of like the, you know, like the waves of, a, of, of the incoming tide. Like you know that it's advancing but it advances kind of by rolling out and back and up and down and for you know, and, and you're getting somewhere, but it does it by kind of overlapping on itself. And that's what poetry does, and that's what this does here. And so that makes it challenging as well, because there isn't like a linear progression to the, uh, to the song. Now, it kind of sounds, when I say that, a little bit like I'm making um, excuses about why this is going to be a bad sermon. Um, that's not my intent. It may actually be a bad sermon. I don't know. But um, but it is mostly to just remind us that we ought to stand in awe of a text like this, because it is one of the most important passages, not only in Isaiah, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, and by the number of times it's referenced in the New, one of the most important te- texts in the entirety of the Bible. And the reason why it's so important, and the reason why it should matter to you, is because it puts its finger on one of our biggest problems, in fact, the core problem that we have as human beings in this world, namely that we have done something wrong and that we are guilty of crimes that we don't like to admit, but we know down deep we are. And it puts its finger not only on that problem, but it puts its finger on the solution and God's plan to solve it. Because because we are guilty, but an offering has been made for that guilt. That's what it says in verse 10. An offering for our guilt. And that's how I want to organize a few thoughts on this passage that Isaiah has here that he's trying to get across under, under that heading of our guilt being removed by an offering. Four points, the reality of that guilt, the one who has no guilt, the consequences of guilt, and the freedom from guilt. And the reality of, of our guilt, the, the one who has no guilt, the consequences of guilt, and the freedom from guilt. Now, with each of these, we'll divide into different parts of this upcoming, this incoming tide of Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, first, let's look at the reality of guilt. We should probably define what I think we mean by 
guilt. And, and, and by that, I mean a, a more technical definition. And the counselor, Ed Welch, is helpful on this because he delineates and kind of carves out things that are not guilt in a, in a biblical sense, right? When we talk about guilt, in other words, he says, we're not talking about shame. Now, shame can come from guilt, guilt over sin. We can, be shame, we can feel shame as a result of that, but it can also, shame can also just be like an embarrassment about sin that has been done to us, perhaps. We can feel shame because of that. And particularly in our culture today, we tend to use shame in a way that really is often about things that we shouldn't feel guilty about, or at least we're told we shouldn't feel guilty about. We use shame in that kind of way. So shame is probably not the best word to use for what we're talking about here. Guilt is also not the same thing as regret. Now, same as with shame. Our, our guilt can lead to regret, right? We wish something had been different if it weren't for our sin. But regret can also include things that we just wish were different, right? We, it's, not, it's not actually the result of sin. We just wish they were different. We regret a, a certain circumstance. Guilt is also not the same thing as a feeling of inadequacy, right? Again, inadequacy can be because of sin. The, li- the literal meaning of the word inadequate means like not adequate, not measuring up to something, and that's true. We don't measure up to God's standard, but we often use the word inadequate, like I used it a few minutes ago, I say, I, I feel inadequate to do the job of explaining this text, which doesn't mean that I'm necessarily guilty of sin. It just means that I'm, that I'm, I'm limited. I'm finite, right? And there's nothing sinful about that. No, when we talk about guilt, we're talking about something with an objective moral component. We're, we are guilty because we broke a standard, which is what exactly what we see in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah uses words like iniquity. He uses it in 53.5 and 6 and 11. Iniquity, which is a violation of a moral obligation. The other word he uses a lot is transgression, also in verse 5, again in verse 8. And then he refers to us as transgressors twice in verse 12. Right? We've transgressed. We've crossed a line. We've overstepped a standard. We've gone too far. And the standard that we've cross that we've transgressed is not a human standard. It's not a human law. We're talking about God's law, right? That has to be in view, that it's God's law that we're talking about here, or else the extreme suffering of the servant that we'll talk about in a few minutes would make no sense if it were just a human transgression, just a human law that we've kind of broken. No, we're talking about something that requires a significant payment. We're talking about the transgressing of God's law. And just in case there's any confusion about who it applies to, whether it's just some people, whether it's just the really bad people, Isaiah says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Now that's fairly comprehensive, right? All means everyone. It should have been clear when he said it the first time, all we like sheep have gone astray, but in case some person who's a little thick in the head says, well, is, is everyone included in all or just some people? Just in case someone asks that, Isaiah keeps going. He says, how many, are in the, how many of the all are in the all? He says, how many have turned away? Well, it's not just some of the all, it's every one. He emphasizes it. All the all. Uh, maybe a few of you kids remember this. Maybe you've done uh, memorized verses, the ABC, the, the Bible ABCs. The Bible ABCs are kind of a system of memorizing a certain Bible verses, um, and each of the Bible verses begins with a different letter of the, uh, of the ABCs. Now, what's the, how, how do the ABCs begin? 
not a trick question. What's the first letter of the ABCs? A. Okay, right. So A. So the way it works is in the, in the Bible ABCs is you say A. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Can we, let's, let's say that, kids. I want to hear you loudest. I've heard you sing, so I know you can say this, right? So just repeat after me. A. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. See, we can do it, right? Now, what's that mean? What's the Apostle Paul saying in his letter to the Romans? He's saying the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before. He's saying, we're all guilty. You feel the weight of that? You should. I mean, most people have, have at least a general sense of this not rightness with something, that their lives are not quite right, and they, and they know at some level that they're a part of that, that they are part of the reason why their life is not quite right. And even the instinct to blame someone else about what's wrong in your life is an indication that someone ought to be to blame. Someone's, it's someone's fault that things aren't, things aren't right. And that nagging sense that we are at least a part of it is what the Apostle Paul in Romans tells us is part of God's general revelation to us. That general unease, that's, our, that's, that's, the, that's the image of God stamped on our hearts that bears witness against the guilt that we feel, that helps us to see that it's not, only, it's not only something that is done to us, it is very much something that is a part of us. But I still think that most of the time we take guilt too lightly, and therefore we take God too lightly. Right? We don't sense that, that this guilt is really a big deal because we don't really have a sense of how much we have transgressed God's law because we don't really have a sense most of the time practically of how perfect God is. And therefore, we don't realize how far short of it we actually fall as, as it relates to the standard. But Isaiah would have had a very different idea. Personally, he would have had a very different idea. In fact, if you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, the beginning of Isaiah, when Isaiah was called by God to do his work of being a prophet for God, Isaiah has a vision back in Isaiah 6, and he says that in this vision he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the Lord had all these angels attending to, to him in this, in this vision. To, and one of the angels called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says the temple shook and the, the house is filled with smoke. And it says, and, and, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, when we see the Lord in all of His glory, we should be undone by our unclean lips, by our own guilt. Now, what's the answer to this? Right, how do we address it? Because often we try to fix ourselves. We try to fix our own guilt. We try to remove the guilt ourselves. Pastor, Pastor Ray Ortland says it's like um, William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Right, kids, you may read Shakespeare's plays in school someday. I know, I, I know the high school freshmen uh, read Romeo and Juliet this year, at least many of them did. Uh, well, one of, one of Shakespeare's other famous plays is called, is called Macbeth. 
And um, it's a story about, let me see if I could just simplify it here. It's a story about a Scottish general. His name is, you guessed it, Macbeth. And he, uh, he has a vision um, that tells him that he's going to be king someday. And sort of egged on by his wife, um, they kill the king so that he can become king, and then they kill lots of other people. That's kind of my summary of Macbeth, right? Scottish general kills the king so he can become king, and then they kill lots of other people. That's kind of the story. Well, at first, in this whole thing, his wife is all in, right? She really wants to be queen. She's willing to do whatever it takes. But as time goes on, and as she watches what her husband becomes, she begins to feel guilty. So guilty that one night, she has a nightmare, and she's walking in her sleep, and she sees, uh, she sees a drop of blood on her, on her hands. And of course, blood on your hands, right? right? That's a clear description of someone being guilty, right? She has blood on her hands. That's what, that's what you'd say because of her part in the murder of the, of the king. And she's trying to wash away, wash away the spot of blood, and she can't get it off. And she's, she's screaming, out, damn spot, I say. But she can't get it out. She's frustrated. And she says, here's the small of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. In other words, no matter how much I wash, I still see it. No matter how much perfume I put on, I can still, I can still smell it. The blood is still there. And, and, the re, and the reality of her guilt is driving her literally insane. And this is the interesting thing. Right? After, her husband actually asked the doctor to come in if there's something that he might be able to give her uh, to cleanse her from this perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Can you, like, can you give her something that'll take care of this guilt that's and the doctor says, nope. Actually, he doesn't say nope. He said the direct quotation is, therein the patient must minister to himself. In other words, there's nothing that I can do. Now, he's right about that part, but by saying the patient must minister to himself, that's a big problem because that's incredibly misleading because Lady Macbeth knows she can't wash away the spot. She knows she can't wash away her own guilt. You need someone who will do it for you. We actually do need a doctor, a servant actually, the one whom Isaiah introduces to us in point number two. We need the one with no guilt. Look how Isaiah describes the servant in chapter 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, this guy who acts wisely, right? He does good works, it means. He does them with the right motives. And he's worthy of exaltation, of praise, of worship. The same thing that the angels were doing around the throne of God in Isaiah 6. So this servant shares in God's holiness. Isaiah also says in verse 9 of chapter 53 that the servant had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, he was, he was perfectly innocent. Innocent in his actions, he had done no violence. Innocent in his words, there was no deceit in his mouth. That's the servant. The servant who is the main character in each of the four servant songs. This is the guy. And we might say, <laughs> we might say that it's fairly obvious, particularly here, that when we're talking about this servant, we're clear that we're talking about the Messiah. Now, you'd expect that of a Christian to say something like that, right? But interestingly, and just to show you that the Jewish scholars of Jesus' time thought the same thing, the common Old Testament study Bible of the Jewish people in Jesus' time. They wouldn't have called it that. They wouldn't have called it a study Bible. They would have referred to it as the, the Aramaic Targum. A Targum is a copy of the Jewish scriptures with commentary alongside. 
right? So kind of like a modern-day study Bible. It would have had notes that explained the different verses. And this version was written in Aramaic because that was the language that was common in the, in the time of, of Jesus, Aramaic. And, the, and that's what everyone spoke. Well, the Aramaic Targum section with Isaiah 52.13 actually has the word Messiah inserted into the text. You know that? It says, Behold, my servant Messiah shall act wisely. Now, the best Hebrew manuscripts don't have the word Messiah in verse 13, but it is a very clear clue that the Jewish teachers of the time would have definitely interpreted it that way. And to be clear from our perspective, right, from a Christian perspective, from being able to look back here, the servant without guilt is without question pointing us to Jesus. He's the servant that Isaiah was prophesying about because that is exactly the guy that the New Testament describes. Paul writes that Jesus knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5. The author of Hebrews writes in another spot that Jesus was tempted like us, but without sin. The Apostle John writes that in Jesus there was no sin. Peter calls Jesus a lamb unblemished and spotless. He's the one without guilt. That's point number two. So, there, if you're writing the story, there are the two main characters in the story. You've got the guilty people, it's us, and you've got the perfect servant, that's Jesus. But that's not a story, those are just the characters of the story. The story really gets going when the servant enters the world of the guilty and begins to execute his mission. And that's where we really see point three, the consequences of guilt. Now, when I use the word consequence, I mean a consequence is something that is a something that necessarily follows as a result of something else. It is a consequence. And I think we can say there's two levels to this. There is the consequence of guilt that we deserve. That's what we see. That's what we see in this point. And then there is the consequence that we get. That's really the next point. The consequence that we deserve as a result of our guilt and the consequence that we actually get. Now, the first consequence, the one that we deserve, that's the one that happens as a result of our guilt running into, into conflict with God's perfection. When you have God's perfection and our guilt running together, that's the guilt, that's the consequence of what, we de, of what we deserve. We sin primarily before we sin against anyone else. Our first and, and foundational transgression is against God. And what we deserve for that transgression is a punishment that is appropriately fit for the crime, which if the crime is treason against the king of the universe, then it would be pretty severe. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes in Romans 6. That's the just payment, the wages for our guilt. But interestingly, Isaiah, in this passage, doesn't show us the consequences of our guilt by showing how we suffer for our guilt. He shows us the consequences of our guilt by showing how the servant suffers for our guilt. He's the one who experiences the consequences of guilt. And that's how we see how severe these consequences are. Just look at the, at, at the text. The servant was, um, was smitten and afflicted, 53.4. Pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, verse 6. Oppressed, afflicted, led to the slaughter, verse 7. Taken away, cut off, stricken, verse 8. He was crushed and put to grief, verse 10. And then back to chapter 52, verse 14. All of this left him so marred that he couldn't even be recognized beyond human semblance. Now, if we were to do a running Bible commentary for a few hours, then then we could go through each one of these verses. And I could show you how it traces through to the crucifixion 
of Jesus. And, and I've got pages of handwritten notes from this week that could help us do that. Right? We could see the horror of what Jesus experienced physically and beyond that spiritually as he felt the full weight of the judgment of God. But as, as a preacher, and with the time we have, my primary burden for right now is that you would see that that suffering that, that he experienced was for you. It was for your guilt. I want you to see the con- contrast that Isaiah is doing here in this, in this song, right? You can find it throughout the song, but it's really most clearly seen in the heart of it, and that's verses 4 to 6 of chapter 53. Right? At that point in the song, it's Isaiah's voice that's speaking, and if you read through it sl- slowly, really slowly, then you, you should just fall down in amazement at the grace of God. So I, this is what I want to do. I want to read those three verses again. And as you do it, I want you to pay very close attention to the pronouns. Right? Kids, this is why grammar matters. This is why you have to pay attention in language arts in school, right? Because, there, because with pronouns, there's such a thing as the person of the pronoun, right? The first person of a pronoun, and adults, you all know this from school, right? You remember, first person, what are examples of first person pronouns, right? I, we, us, me, right? And then there are third-person pronouns, which refer to someone else. And in the case of what Isaiah is writing about, because he's writing about the servant, the third-person pronouns are the he, him, his, right? Now, so watch this then. Watch this as we read through this, the clear contrast between the first-person and the third-person pronouns. You ready for this? Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see that? Who has gone astray and turned? Who has the iniquity and commits the transgression? Us. But who gets the grief and who gets the sorrow? Who gets the striking and the smiting and the affliction? Who is pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded? Who bears the iniquity? Him. Everything we deserve was laid on him. We're the guilty sheep, and he's the atoning scapegoat. Every year, the people of Israel were commanded by the law of Moses to mark a day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And at the climax of the ceremonies performed by the high priest, a live goat was brought in and presented before the high priest. And he was to take his hands, I'm quoting from Leviticus 16 now, he was to take his hands and he was to lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all the transgressions for their sins. That's the word that's used in Leviticus 16. All the iniquities, all the transgressions. You recognize those words from Isaiah 53? And he shall put them on the head of the goat that is the iniquities and the transgressions, and send it into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That scapegoat, that's the servant Jesus. He is the atoning offering for sin, and He is the scapegoat upon whom our iniquities and our transgressions are laid so that our sins might be taken away, far away. God made Him to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's how we get from point three to point four, the freedom from guilt. Because freedom from guilt is exactly what results when the servant with no guilt takes away the consequences of your guilt by suffering the consequences of that guilt. And the result is, for us, healing and peace. That's what it says. The chastisement that brought us peace. There was a, um, <clears throat> there was a song written by an old 18th century um, Methodist called Oh Happy Day. It was written in the, in the 19th century with a, with a, with a chorus and it was changed from the original 18th century poem. It was given a new chorus. It quickly became a, a folk and a gospel music favorite. It basically goes like this. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus washed, he washed my sins away. Oh, happy day. And that's essentially the bulk of it. It's not theologically exhaustive, but what it does is it captures the main idea. When Jesus washes away your sin, that terrible day for him becomes our happiest of days. And this is where the joy of Christmas comes in. Because this terrible day for Jesus and this incredibly happy day for us was in view from the very beginning of Jesus' life. In Luke chapter 2, a passage that's often read and quoted at Christmas or right after Christmas, we meet a guy named Simeon. And Luke tells us that this guy named Simeon was righteous and devout. It didn't mean that he was perfect. It just meant that he was, he was longing to see the coming of the Messiah. And Luke tells us that he had spent his entire life waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And in fact, Luke 2.26, it says the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he got to see the Lord's Messiah. And then Mary and Joseph arrive in the temple in Jerusalem to fulfill the ceremonial obligations of the law with Jesus. Jesus would have still been a newborn at this point. And Simeon sees the baby and takes that baby in his arms and praises God that he is able to see this day. But then he says something very curious to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He says in verse 35 of Luke 2, he says that the salvation that Jesus is going to provide will come only through the piercing of soul. Now, he's talking in some real sense about the piercing of Mary's soul, the grief that she would experience years later when she watched her now-grown son being tortured and executed. But more than that, the, the very torture and execution of Jesus on the cross, the piercing of Jesus, if you will, would be the means by which the salvation that Simeon rejoiced in, it would be the means by which that salvation comes. Do you see? With Jesus, the end was in mind from the very beginning. The goal was always in view. The birth was only the beginning of a rescue plan that would remove the consequences of our guilt and give us eternal salvation. Now, one of the most, one of the most well-known renditions of Oh Happy Day uh, was actually by the famous folk singer um, Joan Baez. 
Uh, she actually sang it at Woodstock and recorded it as well, a live recording of it. Ray Ortland says that he actually remembers hearing her sing a live recording of this song um, where she sings the song, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. But at the end, Ortland says, with her voice trailing off, he heard Baez say, if only it were that easy. If only it were that easy. And you know, in a very real sense, we can say, as we look at Isaiah 53, look at the story of Jesus, beginning with a manger and leading to His suffering and to His death and the chastisement that He experienced and the, and the punishment that He experienced for us, we can say, no, it was not that easy. It is not easy. But for us, it is true. Oh, happy day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing for us what we could not do and washing away our guilt, washing away our sins. Lord, help us with all appropriate seriousness. Recognize your holiness. And with all appropriate seriousness, be profoundly grateful for the cost that you paid for us. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that very appropriate seriousness, fill us with joy that just overflows with happiness when we realize the freedom and the peace that is now ours because of what you have done. Lord, there are some who need to feel that seriousness this morning, and I pray your Holy Spirit would impress it upon their heart if that is them. And there are some, Lord, weighed down by the consequences of their guilt, who need to feel the joy, who need to sense the peace. And so, Lord, I pray that if that is them, that you would give that by your Holy Spirit to them. Allow us, Lord, to celebrate what you have done as we enter into this Christmas week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.